Hello there. This is the Marathon Running Podcast. My guest today is Nate Jenkins. Before I play back the interview, let me give a little background on Nate. I intentionally didn't have him tell his story in our interview because he's gone into lots of detail telling his personal story on other podcasts, and I didn't want to burn much of our time asking him questions he's already answered, as much as I do enjoy hearing him tell his stories. If you're not familiar with Nate, I recommend listening to him speak on the Morning Shakeout podcast, episode number 108 from April 20th of 2020. He spends a lot of time on that podcast talking about his college and professional running career, and especially his experience racing the 2008 Olympic Trials Marathon, where he placed 7th which was kind of the race that put him on the the map, so to speak. But basically, Nate is known for being an athlete with somewhat average ability, who I don't like to say overachieved, but pretty much through just grinding hard work, achieved high levels of success way beyond what anyone would have predicted just looking at him on paper in high school or college. I mean... His high school personal bests were a 4.32 mile, a 9.47 two mile, and 15.58 cross country 5K. Uh, he went to Division II, uh, University of Massachusetts at Lowell, where uh, he did win his regional cross country meet his last year there, but wasn't on anybody's radar as some big national talent or anything. Then, fast forward a few years to 2006, he runs his debut marathon in 2.15.28. He went on to run professionally for a while, um, and then I mentioned the 2008 trials uh, where he placed 7th, but he had a nagging injury that kind of shortened his professional career. But the cool thing about Nate is that pretty much since college, he was 100% self-coached, never joined a training group or anything like that. He just relied on his own study of the sport and ended up becoming a a pretty strong believer in the Renato Canova-style training. Uh, Renato Canova, the Italian distance coach who's kind of seen as responsible for the vast success that East Africans have had in the marathon in the past 20 years. So anyways, Nate is extremely knowledgeable about the sport and very insightful when it comes to training principles, and he actually does a lot of coaching on the side himself. So anyways, here is my interview with Nate Jenkins. Nate Jenkins, first of all, thanks for taking a few minutes. Thank you for having me. First, let me just give a shout out to your blog. The zombie blog, yeah? Yeah, so I know it's not something you're as active on these days, but you still seem to respond very quickly when anybody um, writes you a question on there in the forum. And then, so 10 years ago, um, I ran in college and then graduated, and um, I was wanting to keep running. And that was the first time that 
I kind of had any ownership over my own training and actually started trying to be aware of different philosophies and that kind of thing. And so my older brother, uh, who was also running, told me about your blog. And so basically for 10 years, it's been like a resource and it's just like a hundred percent meat and potatoes. Like it's, I just wanted to acknowledge that. And I should have uh, written down the web address, but if anybody Googles Nate Jenkins blog, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's about as uh, none of the other Nate Jenkins seem to really have a blog. There might be other famous, you know, there's a singer and a, a kid who played football for Dallas Methodist, I think, but that's, that's about it. Yeah, I think it's Nate runs at Blogspot, but I don't even know. Um, it's been a while. Um, I do. I have it set up so that if someone comments, I get an email, so I know it's there, and then I uh, I try to make a response or put a response up. It's really gratifying to hear that it was good for someone like you and that it was helpful. I uh, that's why I did it. Um, there were a few running blogs in the very early days. I'm older than you, so I, I probably came out of college. Oh God, when did I come out of college? Almost 20 years ago. 17, 18 years ago. And there had been a few little running blogs around. And um, I ended up doing one for a friend, a kid I had run with in college, had a little website. He'd had a couple of kids posting their wrestling and running training on it. And uh, he had like one runner from UMass Lowell. That kid graduated. He asked me to do it. So I did it. Um, And then when I was actually running better, I felt like, oh, there might be this... you know, if this was me five years ago, I would have liked to have seen this. So I sort of put some of my stuff out. Um, and then I just keep the thing going because I actually, uh, it drives me nuts that I did it for years for running times for two or three years. And then that's, that's like gone. And I'm like, ah, now I got to look it up on paper if I want to know what I did and, you know, what I was thinking on that at that time. So, right. Yeah. It's like a, such a huge body of work at this point. It'd be a shame to not have it like uh, secure somewhere. Um, so, anyways, to give like a little, context to this conversation um i was on your blog um about a year ago and i was training for a 10 mile race last fall and i was i was reading stuff you know like your stuff and listening to podcasts and i was starting to get interested in the idea of maybe training for a marathon which i haven't done yet but my wheels just kind of started turning and you were the first person that I ever heard very clearly articulate the problem of glycogen conservation and fat efficiency and that whole thing. I mean, you hear it kind of get mentioned in passing, but I mean, I think on a podcast or a few, I mean, you've done a lot of podcasts, but I mean, you've gone really like clearly into the numbers of like, okay, these are the calories you can store in carbs this is the number of calories it takes to run a marathon. Like there's, there's a deficit there and just simply eating a bunch of stuff while you're running is not necessarily going to do the trick and that kind of thing. And um, so anyways, as you kind of sparked my interest in that, my, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. And I asked you a question on your blog and the question was, okay, I want to, do the training to um, in order to have my body be more efficient at burning fats, which is important. Um, but at the same time, 
I may plan on using some fuel during a marathon, even if it's just like as a small hedge or like to, you know, just to stave off the depletion a little bit because of a backup or whatever. And if I'm going to use it at all during the race, I'd probably better practice using it. So my question to you like a year ago was, do you think that training with um, carbs diminishes your ability to um, teach your body to use fats since you're like feeding it carbs while you're running and not um, relying on the fats. And I really appreciated that you said like, that's an important question and I really don't know. And so I've been asking that question to basically everybody I talk to and I get, I'm getting a range of answers basically. Um, I, you know, my most recent um, episode before this one with Dr. David Neiman, the one I mentioned to you, he was the first person to, that I've ever heard definitively say, no, taking carbs while you train does not diminish your ability. Actually, it's just, he kind of gave me the impression it's more the fitness itself. Like the training is what's going to help you be more fat efficient. Whether or not you take carbs while you're training is not going to affect that. So Anyways, I just wanted to kind of set that up mostly for listeners to give a little context, though, because um, you're the guy who's kind of started this question for me. Um, and actually, probably a, a big part of like why I even started interviewing people and making it into a podcast. So to get to my first question to you, since um, we've already kind of talked about that, something I've heard you say is that you never really took much fuel during your marathons. I mean, you, I think you said in one race you did flat Coke a couple times towards the end. So I guess my question is, even though you acknowledge that taking in carbs during a marathon doesn't necessarily fill the deficit of stored glycogen versus needed glycogen for the race, I'm just curious why you never, why you decided not to fuel during your marathons, even, even knowing it's not going to bridge the whole gap, but just for some extra boost or at all, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, so it was mostly a pragmatic answer. Um, I do believe that if you're going to take fuel during a marathon, you should train doing it. If you don't, you know, doing anything new on the day, you're just asking for problems. With that in mind, um, the next question would be, for me at the time. Okay, if I'm going to take something, what am I going to take? Um, you know, so I could get like a, I could have gone with any of the, there were like four or five Gatorade products at the time. Now there's probably like 105 Gatorade products, but you know, there are four or five different Gatorades. You can water those down to different degrees. You can use a flattened soda and water that down to different degrees. Um, and then there are the, you know, uh, specifically designed sports drinks and mixes that you could go with. And then you can get into your goos and your, you know, I'm going to eat a banana. I don't, I don't care. Um, the thing that it came down to for me was there was a certain amount of risk in using, a, in taking a fuel. So if I'm going to eat something, if I'm going to take that on board um, and my gut has shut down, I'm going to throw it up. Uh, I don't want to do that. Um, now if I'm going to eat something and it, you know, you risk getting, you know, runner's trots or whatever you want to call it. Um, so there was, a, there were a couple of rounds of possible risk associated with it. Additionally, I 
realized pretty early on. So when I first started my first marathon cycle, my plan was to take um, at probably not goose, but I was probably going to use a watered down Gatorade um, for my bottles. If and I wasn't clear at my first marathon whether or not I was going to get to put out bottles. But if I was going to get to put out bottles, that was my my initial plan. Um, but it became pretty clear to me as I started to do a couple of marathon-specific workouts that I was a pretty efficient guy anyway. That as big as I am, I just I, I was fairly efficient and that my body was very quickly kind of figuring that out. Additionally, it looked like I wasn't going to get to put out bottles. The uh, race I was going to was letting, they were, had made this program. Uh, Greg McMillan had actually put it together with the old Austin Freescale Marathon, which is now the Austin Marathon um, and a very different course now. But and they brought in about 50 guys and I want to say about 40 women to take a shot at a qualifier. It was very like what Cal International's been like the last uh, few rounds. So we had this huge flotilla of people going out, and they basically are like, we just don't have the spots for water bottles um, for everybody. And so then my thing became, I don't want to do something day of that I can't. Now, in the end, sort of like the week of under, they figured a way out. They, they set out huge tables, and so I put out bottles with water in them. But, um, yeah, so I just sort of pragmatically, you know, um, I also had never seen anybody who had a story at an elite level that was, hey, I was failing in the, the marathon. I was blowing up. I'd, I'd run slower than what my 10K and half marathon indicated. I started drinking Gatorade and bam, I was a great marathoner. Um, I'd never even seen somebody who said like, well, you know, I'd run 212 and I'd run pretty well, but I just couldn't quite finish it. And man, you know, I started taking that fuel and I ran 210.55 and I finished like a demon. Now, maybe those stories are out there and I just didn't hear them, but I hadn't heard anything like that. So I didn't feel a whole lot of pressure to do it. Um, and then once I sort of had run a marathon and I had some issues in my first marathon, um, but I also had some issues in my, my prep for my first marathon. So once I had kind of done that, then I really didn't, I don't know, I just, I, I wasn't too worried about it. Yeah, well, I do. There's so much appeal for me in that approach, just because it's like eliminating this huge variable from the race, you know? Um, like if you just go in knowing, look, I'm going to train without it. I'm not going to use it. I mean, cause like you said, there's a huge risk. You don't know how it's going to work, you know? And then if you plan on using it, it's like that has to become this integrated part of your whole training regimen where you have to figure that out. And it's almost seems like a distraction from, getting fit like you have to have this on top this like added layer of complexity on top of everything else so i love the idea of just eliminating that variable like you're saying pragmatically and not even have to worry about it and you know the other interesting thing about fuel is i hear everybody describing their routine for okay i'm going to do this number of calories every 30 minutes or this like down to the to the calorie, they have it planned out for the marathon, but I don't nearly as often hear anybody go into that great a detail of what they're eating exactly like the day before or any, cause I mean, obviously the greatest number of calories is going to be already stored in your body. So it seems like that should be kind of the primary focus. Like, Hey, am I storing the right type of carbs and the right number and like 
all the timing of that. Um, did you have your nutrition kind of dialed in like really tight when you were during your buildups or did you, were you like measuring food and body weight and all that kind of thing? Oh, hell no. Um, so, uh, first I, as as someone who does a lot of online coaching, um, I think that especially among, uh, sort of a window of athletes, um, you know, who I would call the like weekend elite, you know, the, 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 that not going to go to the trials, but they're, they're, they're a darn fine runner, you know, in that window, particularly the males in that window. I feel like it is just full of eating disorders there. I can't tell you how many athletes who you, you know, just in, in the daily emails and the back and forth, it's man, if I'm three pounds lighter, I'm tearing it up. I just, I just got to have those three pounds off. That's the difference. You know? And it's like, no, you have the flu. Like, you know, no, you're anemic or no, you're, you're in really good shape right now. Another cycle. Yeah. You're going to be there, but no, you pretty much hit it. This is about what your workouts indicate you could do. Starving yourself isn't going to change that. Um, and I ran with guys um, who had trouble with this um, and who in the, the short term, there is a, there is a short term game. I, dieting, uh, calorie restriction, weight control, there's a short term game. Um, it's much like doing a lot of anaerobic work. So it's really easy to cut weight like a wrestler one time and kind of go, wow, I felt light. I, you know, especially if you eat a little bit that day after cutting weight and you get your energy back, I felt light. I felt strong. I ran fast, man, that really works. Um, same as doing a lot of like interval work. You do a, a ton of interval work for a month and you're like, man, that is how you train. Good God, I just took 30 seconds off my 5K. This is the key. It's not sustainable. It's not going to build. And so the long term of both of those things is that you actually increase injury risk and you reduce recovery and and you harm your long-term development. So in terms of diet when I was running, A, I made a decision at a certain point that I wanted to train full time and I wasn't making a ton of money. So financially, I didn't have the, the money to really be too, too picky about what I was eating. Um, and sometimes that caused problems in terms of just not eating a good diet. But in terms of any sort of restriction or anything like that, I think that Bill Rogers was the the healthiest, most consistent athlete who trained at, at some of the most insane levels for almost 20 years with, with no breaking down. And the guy, ate, you know, mayonnaise, beer, ho-hos, he could have whatever, whatever was in sight, but he was getting the fuel in there to recover. You're better off eating crap like that than not eating enough. You know, you're better off being a little heavy most of the time, 98% of the time than and have it, you know, sometimes you're on the line, you're a little heavy. So what? So what? You know, I'm not saying that, you know, everybody should have a spare tire. But the reality is, is if you're training at a really high level, not like, hey, I do marathons um, once a year and I run 35 miles a week. Yeah, you, you might have to watch what you eat. If you're training the way I train and you're watching what you eat, you're anorexic. 
or, you know, you, you have, I don't want to give it some, that's a very specific definition, but you have an eating disorder. You, you let it go. Um, that said, in terms of the specific eating the day or days right before, I did follow a routine. Um, and that was that it had been sort of the opposite of what I had with the fueling where no one had really made a point that really sunk in with me and it really made sense. And, um, there was a doctor who worked with USATF. Um, and it wasn't David Martin. He came with him, but college professor, um, dietitian. And he talked about, he had put out some stuff. I eventually got to see him speak when I was on the world championship teams. But, um, if you're eating a single sitting of food, and it's exceeding 700 calories. Your body can't process that into glycogen directly. More than 700 calories in a, a, a short period of time, it's going to have to store it as fat. It doesn't matter if you're eating brown rice or you know bacon and eggs. Some of that's going to have to get stored as fat. And so his thing was that the, the carb-loading meal was pointless that, you know, you shouldn't be downing a 2,000, 3,000 calorie bowl of pasta the day before because most of that's going to be stored as fat and you already got plenty of fat. But that you should be eating, grazing a lot of high carbohydrate foods. Um, and he really kind of advocated like a seven to eight grazing meals thing. That didn't work too well with you know, sort of doing a little bit of media, doing some stuff for the shoe company and that sort of stuff the day before. Um, so I just more, I drank a lot of sports drink. I ate a lot of, um, you know, kind of carb heavy snacks, be that granola bars or, or, you know, bananas, you know, just stuff with carbs and just sort of, I didn't have really a big meal all day. I mean, usually there was a sit down meal at some point, but I might not eat that much of it because I was just not that hungry. Um, but I did try to do that so that whatever extra fuel I was taking in that day before was stored as carbs. And I did find that that was pretty effective. Um, and then the other thing was, uh, Joe V Hill has always advocated. Um, and at least that's where I heard it, that you shouldn't really eat anything, um, for like three, four hours before the start of the marathon. Cause you want your body to kind of get into a, a bit of a conservation mode. Um, and so I, I would also do that. But that was also convenient. I mean, frankly, if I'm eating something two hours before a race, I'm going to, I'm probably going to throw up. Like, I, I'm not going to handle that that well. I have seen people who can do it. I was not, I was not one of them. Yeah. Other than this whole issue of glycogen, um, the other big thing that I've kind of, you know, that anybody will take away reading your stuff is, that you're heavily influenced by uh, Renato Canova. And I have a few questions about um, like his marathon training or how you've interpreted it. Um, number one is I read on your blog, you have one uh, blog post about kind of like a generalized compare and contrast uh, between um, like Canova style marathon training and like what you kind of say, like the typical traditional American style is. And, um, there's a book that you give as kind of like an example placeholder to kind of represent quote, like American style. And basically the, you know, in a nutshell, the big difference is that Canova has his athletes do just way more work at and around marathon pace, as opposed to like 
5k 10k training and then like a long run on the weekend at like a you know casual pace or whatever and that's something that seems to come up a lot when you look at different programs and systems you see a lot of people and they'll even um, explicitly say things like hey i we need our five our you know 10k half marathon speed to be like optimal so that marathon pace feels easier kind of like the the higher your threshold, you know, in theory, the faster your marathon pace should be or the easier it should feel or something like that. So what what do you think is the proper role of, say, like VO2 to up to like threshold pace training in a marathon buildup? Um, that question has two answers, depending on the type of athlete that you are. Um, if you are a a pure slow twitch, like the born marathoner, then you need to be doing some of that throughout the entire training cycle in the specific phase. It can be reduced, but the reality is, is that we're always producing some lactate and you need to be able to use it as fuel and people who are predominantly like vast majority, traditional slow twitch fiber runners, um, don't do that very well naturally. And they need to train that at all times. And so, Someone like me, who is like that, will notice a, a significant difference in what they can do in a marathon if they just completely cut out any sort of anaerobic work in the specific prep versus if they keep it in, they'll have another gear, so to speak, a couple of few seconds a mile, that sort of thing. If you have good speed uh, or if you just kind of are a natural 5,000 runner, you, you were the type of person who really thrived in high school and college running and um, you have that that good speed. And this is tough. Most people are not going to go get a muscle biopsy and, and check it out. You sort of have to look at the trajectory of your your finishing times and then in your, your workouts, what workouts feel good to you, what workouts kind of come naturally, which ones are always awful no matter how fit you are, that sort of thing. But for that type of athlete, then it just belongs in the base phase. Um, and when I say base phase, I, I don't care if you're calling it a fundamental phase. I don't care if you do a, a, an active base and a linear base. You're, I'm talking until about eight weeks out from the marathon. Your focus should be on getting really fit in the 5,000 to the half marathon. Eight weeks out from the marathon, you should be in darn fine 5, 5K, 10K shape. You should really be able to rock and roll. And I get, there is this, oh, I, I need it so that marathon pace feels easy. That lasts for about the distance of the shorter race. So if you're really in ripping 5K shape, really in ripping 10K shape, or even half marathon shape, I can't tell you how many guys I've known who, they're doing the best 10K half marathon workouts of their lives. And they go and they run a marathon and they float through half marathon at a great split as fast or even faster than they were sort of hoping for their marathon. And they invariably say how easy and how great it felt. And they're all but walking after 20 miles. Versus, I'll be honest, you know, I ran 215 in my debut and I did not feel that good for the first 10 miles. I just didn't. I was on, I was already kind of running on the edge. Just flat out. And if I had had to race a 5K that day, it wouldn't have been pretty. Wouldn't have. I wasn't prepared for a 5K. Wasn't racing a 5K. There are certain aspects of these events that overlap. At the end of your base phase, 
you know, eight weeks out from your specific race, you really have some choices and you should be about eight weeks away from PRing at any event, you know? So if you're saying, man, you know, January 1st, I'm ending my base phase. My goal race in that case should be at the end of February, beginning of March. And I don't care if it's a mile or a marathon, you want to be in the kind of shape on January 1st that you could think about a PR in either of those distances at the end. Maybe not ideally, you know, you can tweak that base, you can move stuff around a little bit, but really you're looking to train your general fitness. And then you use that last portion, maybe six weeks of it, to really focus that fitness, really train for the dance that you're going to do. You know, what are the specific demands of my racing event? And in the last couple of weeks, the hay's in the barn. Take a rest. You got to do enough so you don't get sick. You got to do you know, enough to keep yourself feeling a little poppy, a little sharp. But, you know, uh, you can only screw it up in the last two weeks. Um, but that's the, you know, the way that I kind of view training. And I think that I, I, it drives me nuts. I, I Seeing someone say some of the things people will call marathon workouts. And someone's like, whoa, I did eight by mile, great marathon workout. No, no, maybe, well, maybe, maybe in the base phase, if it's marathon pace, if you're doing eight by mile at your goal marathon pace, you know, three months out, four months out as an early first time of, of dipping your toes into the marathon pace running. Oh yeah, sure. Fine. That's building towards, you know, five by three miles or something. Yeah. All right. That's fine. But no, no, don't tell me, oh, I might, you know, my goal is to run a 220 marathon. I just did eight by mile in 455, I'm ready to go. Bullshit. Bullshit. It, it's it's different type of fitness. You're ready to run a good 10K. You really are. But the marathon is littered with great 10K runners who are in great 10K shape, who just couldn't deliver on the day, and who got beat by schmucks like me who were ready to run a marathon. I've never run a 10,000 under 29 minutes in my life. Frankly, maybe was in shape to come close to it for about six months of my entire life. But I've been top 10 in the U.S. Olympic trials. That's insanity. There were 50 guys in that race who honestly had no business on any day ever losing to me. Now, 10, of, 10 15 of them lost because they were sick. They were hurt. They were overtrained. It's the Olympic trials. You're going for it. That happens. No shame in that game. But other ones came there thinking they were going to make the team. Thinking they were going to be in the top 10. And frankly, if we'd been racing a 10K, they would have been. But we weren't. So my question was about the uh, different paces, and you're saying it's more important to get in that type of shape during your fundamental slash base phase before you get specific. And another thing you've um, I've read uh, of yours is that this fundamental or base phase, you said that the volume should be just as high or if not 10 to 15 miles higher than your specific marathon phase which for me was a little counterintuitive so i was curious it almost seems like the reverse of what you usually hear like um usually what you hear is like yeah we'll do like a little intro phase and then we got our 12 week block where we really ramp up and that's where all the work gets done it almost sounds like uh it's sort of almost the reverse where you're getting like really really fit and then like spending spending a shorter amount of time getting really specifically Fit, getting ready for the specific demands but about the volume specifically though why would you want well, i i just kind of assumed intuitively well 
you know, closer to the marathon, I would want the volume higher because the volume of the race is higher. But why can you explain the reason behind that? Yeah. First, let me amend my original answer that I would just put a caveat that you should be fit enough to handle that kind of volume for an extended period of time. If you've been a 50 mile a week person and you're doing a 70 mile a week marathon phase, you can't try to, you're asking for trouble to start hitting 70 mile weeks, 16 weeks out. That's just going to be a lot. When you talk about someone like me, who by the time I moved to the marathon, I had a couple of years of averaging, averaging north of 140 miles a week, you know, um, so I could handle very high volume for, you know, with, with, with great consistency, but just generally speaking, um, the reasoning behind this is that in the base phase, your fundamental phase, your nonspecific work, the actual external output of the workouts is not super important. I mean, you don't want to be so exhausted that you're just slogging all the time. Cause then you're just, your body's just breaking down. You know, if you're, if you can't hit the pace that you should be able to hit with a certain effort, that is a heads up that maybe you're going a little bit, you're getting a little overcooked and you're not getting full recovery. But generally speaking, if, if it's the fundamental phase and you go down to the track and the workout is 10 by kilometer at critical velocity or whatever, you know, like 10 K pace and you go out and you're running half marathon pace, but the effort's right. Finish that workout. It's fine. Note it, you know, I should probably take a little extra recovery so that the next workout's better. But it doesn't matter in terms of that actual workout because you're going to get the correct internal effort. You're going to get the adaptations that you want from it. In the specific phase, however, the external output becomes important. You're really worried about teaching the body to run that specific pace with those that level of effort. So now if we're doing specific 10K training and you go down to the track and you're going to do the the same workout, 10 by 1,000 with the same rest at the same 10K goal pace, and you do the first rep and the effort's right, but you're running half marathon pace, stop. Take the rest of the day off. Maybe try the workout tomorrow. See if you feel better because the specific output matters. And that's why I would say like, Oh man, you know, like I would, I do, I I would put a little less emphasis on keeping the volume high in the specific phase. Now, if you're marathon training, your volume should be pretty high. I'm not saying like, Hey, 35 miles a week. It's great. No, you, you, you want to be training at a fairly high volume, but the workout becomes more important. Mm. Can I hit this workout? And if that means that I have to shave out cut out the morning run or shave my volume a little bit or pull back my effort on those easy days or do fewer workouts, you know, so I, oh, while well, during the base phase, I was really hammering. I was getting two big workouts in. Now I sort of do this like little, you know, half workout thing in the middle of the week and one big workout on the weekend. Fine, fine. You know, whatever you got to do to make sure that those workouts are really mm. on point. So that was kind of the, the thing of that. Now, that also is viewing it as someone who has a certain amount of, of fitness coming in. And it's, it's a slightly different answer. You know, you've run in college. You've always got a, a good lifetime base. Yeah, that, that answer probably applies to you. But if we're talking to someone, I've been running for two years. You know, I'm getting ready for my marathon. You know, eh, the answer's going to be different there. The answer's going to be, it's a, it's a, that's a different scenario. Right. So you mentioned that in the specific phase, the external output really matters. And 
obviously, I mean, that's that's got to be based on some goal pace you've come up with, right? So how do you kind of, what's the best way to calibrate your workouts toward and like, you know, toward what pace they should be um, if you don't have some recent result to kind of use as a benchmark? First, I mean, if you have no recent result, it's different than, oh, this is my first marathon, but I just ran a good 10K. You know, if you have any sort of a race time, you can use the the race calculators that are out there, whether you're talking McMillan or Tin Man, they all work on the same basic concept. You should slow roughly 5% as the as the distance doubles. And those are, it's highly accurate. And, and, and don't get me wrong, there are exceptions. I, I, I'm a pure endurance athlete who did huge volume. I slowed more like 3% as the distance doubled. Um, someone who's, you know, a, a Mo Farah, who, someone who's really explosive, he's, he's probably slowing about 7%, particularly as it gets longer. Um, and I, I think, you know, there's been like some people, you know, and if you want to give him crap because you think he's doped, Grand, I'm with you. Fine, but if you're giving him crap because his marathon's only 205 or 206, dude's run a 348 mile equivalent, 347 mile equivalent. It's, it's 1500 is outrageous. You, you can't have it all, you know. So he's going to slow a little bit more. But basically, the calculators are pretty accurate. You need to be aware that if you look at the calculator and you're put in a couple of times that you think are you know recent, like oh man, I ran this 5k and this 10k, and they're both about equal performances if you notice man as the race is getting longer like i really taper off and then also if you go out now all right i my 10k says that i should be able to run a marathon at 235 and now i'm gonna go i'm gonna do a tempo run i'm just gonna try it out i'm gonna try to do eight to ten miles at that pace and see what it feels like should be hard you haven't been training for it let me run it should be hard but if you can only go five six miles you'll probably need some endurance work before that is a reality you know so you probably are a good series a you know a good real aerobic development phase away from that i work with a guy right now came to running late he's like a high school athlete you know he's, he's in his late 20s but he you know he's, he can run a mile in 430 but then his 5k is only 16 minutes you know and if i were going to put him in a marathon you know the 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 charts are telling me, oh, you know the four thirty. This guy should be able to run. I don't know what it is, but you know a two thirty or something like that. I would be like, oh, let's let's talk about three hours, dude. There's no aerobic house. Doesn't matter, you know. Um, versus right. you build an aerobic house. I mean, I coached a woman who ran a two fifty seven marathon and a one twenty seven half marathon. She had a huge aerobic house, you know, so she could run really really tight. She also needed to do more speed work and that was. A- bone of contention but the point is is you know they you got to be aware of who you are as an athlete as well and, and your own strengths and weaknesses but you can at least get a ballpark that way and then you narrow it down by doing the workouts so you might go into it yeah. saying i mean honestly like getting ready for my first marathon i went into it thinking i was trying to run 222 and as i did the workouts and things were going better i realized no i'm trying to run 215 you know how do I know that? Well, you know, if you can do 12 to 16 miles at that pace in training, you're, you're that's probably about what you should be trying to run, you know? Yeah. So how important do you think it is if, if your ultimate goal is optimal marathon performance, 
how important do you think it is for people to go back and revisit shorter race distances between marathon cycles? And I guess, especially for someone like you mentioned, Mo Ferry's like a, you know, three forty eight mile, probably already tapped out at the shorter distance. Isn't it going to improve anymore at like 10 K and below? Like for somebody who probably never reached their potential at like half marathon and below, how important do you think it is to go back and get faster at those things and like kind of go back and forth to the marathon? Yeah. So I, yeah, if you're, if you're Mofra, you don't have to, you've, you've tapped out those fitnesses and just the maintenance workout that you're going to do generally and just hitting a few races like that. You're going to be fine. Yeah. Is Steve Jones syndrome. You know, Steve was a guy who honestly wasn't a Mofra. He wasn't that fast. He was a born marathoner, but he maximized his potential. And for a guy with Steve Jones's profile to run a sub 28 minute 10 K track on the track is really, you know, he's not a quick guy, not much quicker than I am. He didn't need to go back and, and keep doing a ton of work there. You know, hit a couple of races, do a little bit in workouts. You're going to be fine. But for the normal person who is trying to incorporate marathons into a long term buildup, I would say that that is absolutely key to effectively improve it. That if you're not touching on those things, you're simply not going to develop in the marathon. You're, you're hiding your weak point. And the reality is, is that your weak point in running is like a metal post in the ground. And your fitness is tied to it with a rubber band. And if that post doesn't move, you're limited by the length of the rubber band. And if you pull it too hard, either you're going to come snapping back or you're going to snap the rubber band and you're hurt. And your fitness is going to go back. So you need to move that metal post. You need to inch it along. And improvements that you can make in that weak point will lead to big breakthroughs um, and the other stuff. Because it's not just, oh, now that rubber band can stretch more. Because the other thing that happens is now you can do all of those other workouts better. And it, it really has sort of a, a, a knockoff effect that is um, really noticeable. Um and so, yeah, if, if you can identify that weak point. And honestly, for most, most people in modern running, that weak point is aerobic development, not speed. It, it's aerobic development. Even the people who are like, but I'm not very good in the 5K. Yeah, well, you're not very good in the 5K because you don't have an aerobic house. You train too short. You train too fast. You do too many workouts. Um, and... It, you're going to be better served to build an aerobic house and, and, and do that. But that's not true to everybody. And there are definitely exceptions. So it sounds like you may even need to build your aerobic house before you could really find out where your weak points are. Cause if before you've done that, you haven't really given the five K 10 K their really fair shot. Because yeah. Because you, you haven't. And, and, and I mean, that's, that's part of developing. And most people are, we don't live in a society where, you know, you talk to, Canova talks about the Kenyan athletes being 90% developed before they ever find their way to a coach. You know, if you live in a society where you're, you're really getting a huge amount of aerobic activity in your general life, then you can come to running and very quickly, you know, get a sense of the runner that you're going to be. But no, yeah, if you, if you don't have the aerobic house, there's, there's no question. You have no idea who the heck you're going to be. Um, but does that mean that you should just like, well, man, I don't have the aerobic house. I should just give up on racing. Like, no, like, hey, enjoy it. You're going to get some processes. But really, you should be kind of thinking that the priority every week, 365, 
is to get aerobically fitter. And yeah, sometimes I do a few workouts to sharpen up because, man, I really want to beat Larry this weekend at, at, at you know, the 5K or, or in six weeks at the, the local turkey chop, whatever it is. Yeah, that's cool. I got you. I'm with you. Um, and you need to train all systems. I'm a, I'm a believer in that. But, um, but yeah, you got to um, – aerobic is king. You know, I think there's a big thing. that There's always the, the speed kills everybody in distance running who doesn't have it. And you know what? That's true in the Olympic final. The SOB who can run a 49-second quarter – and, you know, blow everybody out of the water. He's going to win. He's going to win. But that's what separates the 16 guys who made the final. What separates those 16 men from the rest of the world is their aerobic ability. The aerobic superpower is the only superpower in distance running. And that's what defines everybody. Yes, if you meet someone who is as aerobically fit as you, who has more speed, they will beat you. But I'm a perfect example. I've never run a quarter. Quarter's 58.8. Flat out. My wife can beat me in a flat out 100 meters. No question. But she's run 17.30 for 5K. And I've run under 14 minutes. You know? Why? Aerobic house. Aerobic house. So, all right. So, staying on this aerobic house concept for a minute. Um you know, pretty much whatever program you look at, whether it's like Canova or anybody's system, generally, you know, if you take all the minutes run in a given week, the majority, anywhere from like 50 to, you know, 80% in some cases is probably going to be at an intensity lower than marathon oh, yeah. pace. Yeah. Um, and so say in a given week, you have maybe two, three like specific targeted workouts and then the rest, all this like kind of filler volume in, and it can be like called different things like regeneration or like easy runs or whatever. Um, how important do you think it is to, cause there's such a potential range of effort, even in the easy category, there's like if you're a 15 minute 10k guy, you could be running or a 15 minute 5k guy, you could be running 10 minute pace on your easy days or a seven minute pace. Like how important do you think it is to have variation in that and even maybe target some kind of like, you know, not, I wouldn't even say moderate, but like sub moderate paces. Cause I mean, if that's the majority of your running, it seems like that has the potential to have the biggest impact on your aerobic health. So, I mean, how worried should you be? I mean, obviously on your easy days, you want to be recovering for the workouts. You don't want to, you want your easy days to be easy on, on the one hand, but on the other hand, it seems like uh, an eight minute mile is going to have a greater aerobic stimulus than a nine minute mile or not necessarily. What do you think? I would say not necessarily. And in, in fact, depending on your fitness, the nine minute mile might have a better stimulus for you than the eight minute mile. So the problem with aerobic training is that it it doesn't work in the way that we intuitively think. We think we go harder, we get more out of it. What happens with the aerobic system is if you go harder, you stop using the aerobic system. It starts to wheel over into the anaerobic. And your body thinks, I did a great job today because my anaerobic system didn't work that hard. My aerobic system didn't work that hard. We shared the load life's good and we don't make a we don't have a big training impact versus if you slow the frick down a little bit you never really i mean you're always a little anaerobic i'm gonna say oh you never, you never go anaerobic and someone's gonna get on there and be like you're always anaerobic. yes 
there is always some lactic acid being produced somewhere. When I'm moving my arms like this, I am overwhelming some muscle somewhere in my arms, and there's a little bit of lactic acid flushing in. But when I'm saying aerobic is I mean that your system is, is flushing that out with ease. You, I would say that it is modulating the pace is very important if you're doing a lot of running. So if you're running the kind of volume, 100 miles a week, 150 miles a week, something like that, 90 miles a week, you should not be running two paces. It shouldn't be like, well, I run seven-minute miles on my regular runs, and I run five-minute miles in my workouts. No, no. Like, there should be, you should be hitting every freaking pace from, you know, eight-minute mile pace down to four-minute mile pace at some point in a week if you're doing that kind of volume. But if you are the regular average Joe, the biggest problem I see most often is that your easy runs are too damn hard. I always said 140 beats per minute, but frankly, you know, um, Maffetone or whatever is super popular right now. Get your, you know, take your age, minus 40, keep your heart rate under that. I don't care. Keep it pretty low. And the thing that a lot of people discover is they can't do it. They go out and they, they're they like, I'm running easy. And it's like, what's your heart rate? 165. You're not running easy. You think it's easy because you run like that all the time. You're used to it. It's not easy. You know, and they're like, well, but you know, Chris Zielinski ran 530 pace. Yeah, and his heart rate was about 135 beats per minute. He was a sub 27 minute fucking 10K runner. Like, that was easy for him. And for some people can run hard and their body figures it out, right? And and it will make it easy. But for some people, if they hammer, they're just not going to improve. They're just Their body can't figure it out. They need to bring that down. So I would say, yeah, if you're building that, the most important thing is that the majority of those miles should be in that sort of easier zone. Then it's just important to hit right training paces across the board. There are certain training paces that have become famous because they work. Yeah, you know, physiologists have discovered why some of these paces work, why lactate threshold is important, why VO2 max is important. But those paces were the cornerstone of good training before they knew why they worked. Because they worked. You know, and if you look back at the work of like a Percy Cerruti or an Arthur Lodier, they're they're targeting these types of paces in their workouts because they're effective. And experience has shown it that like, man, if I have someone do work at that pace, they improve more than if they go faster or slower. So if you look across the, the all different names, all different stuff, but you're basically talking about, you know, sub threshold, marathon pace type type running. Lactate threshold pace type running of some sort. Um, a critical velocity, you know, is what Tim Mann wants to call it, and that's what's popular right now. Great. Uh, but like a, a, a 10K pace, slightly slower than 10K pace uh, for an elite level runner uh, type pace. A VO2 max type pace, probably a little faster than, for most people, it's a little faster than 5K pace, you know. Um, you should be doing some basic alactic sprinting, you know, strides, diagonals. I don't care. Short hills, something. You want to be, you want to be getting that muscular side of things and not putting any acid in your system. 15 seconds or less in a full recovery. And then easy running. Now, pace-wise, you say, oh, it should be 60% of your 5K. And, and it, it should. But if your house isn't developed and you're you're a talented person, you might be running that pace that is prescribed correctly and your heart rate's through the roof and you're actually kind of working like a dog. 
That's not good. Slow it down. Slow it down. Slow it down. Slow it down. When I was running professionally, I was doing huge miles. I would do a 10-mile run every night, and I set the speed limit at eight minutes per mile. That was as fast as I was allowing myself to go. Um, that's way, you know, when you figure, you know, marathon pace for that whole time period is somewhere between 5 and 5.20 per mile. You know, so you're talking way slower than that. And frankly, you know, my brother occasionally ran. One time he wanted to run with me, great. I ran with him. We ran 10-minute, 11-minute miles. Fine, that's fine. You know, my roommate was a multi-eventer um, in college. He's a great athlete. He was no distance runner. You know, I'm a fairly big guy, and he was a whole lot bigger and wider than I was. Occasionally, he'd want to do the run with me. Well, you weren't going to run no eight-minute pace, you know? Like, you're not going to carry 210 pounds at eight-minute mile pace for 10 miles. I don't care how good of an athlete you are. That's 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 a task um, without it being a true hammer fist. So, yeah, maybe we run 10-minute mile pace. So what? Who cares, you know? Because that was true recovery. It couldn't be too slow. Um, right. Now... If you're recovering well, and you, then you should be doing some of the stuff a little bit quicker. And there are other paces to mix in. And you should definitely be hitting sort of that, um, I call it, uh, I like Tin Man's easy tempo name for it. But um, Canova would say, oh, that 80 to 90% of marathon pace, or uh, I think uh, that works out to 60 to 70% of 5K pace. Um, and if you, you talk, a lot of the old school guys talk about the importance of that, but they just expected it to happen naturally because you go and you run with some friends and everybody wants to see, you know, who's tougher and you end up hammering a little bit on a run, but you don't want to hammer too much because it's not a race. Um, but yeah, you should be hitting that, but not every day, not every day, just, just here or there. So you've mentioned lactate a few times and something, a, a distinct difference that I seem to notice in Canova schedules is this these these really long workouts and you've mentioned them a lot where um you know you'll have alternating paces or you'll do long intervals and the recovery is like not a jog you know it's something like um some kind of little slower than marathon pace or something so there seems to be so much of that um like kind of fast recovery type interval training in canova's um schedules do you think the sole purpose of that is just to teach your body to clear lactate at faster and faster paces, meaning like during those recovery? I guess one, what is the main reasoning for that and how critical do you think that is? Um, I'm actually going to add a third portion to that, which was the question that you sort of had in there of is the, is the sole purpose of that the lactate threshold improvement? Um, so the first part, um, how critical is that? I would say it's extremely critical. I would not write a program for any athlete right now that didn't include some form. And I, I categorize it all under, I, I call it alternations. So I would not write a single workout that doesn't include some form of that kind of work. Then in terms of the second part, you know, how does it work? You know, what it, what is it doing? I don't really know. Um, I know that it, it will improve your lactate threshold very noticeably. So you'll see that jump in what you can race for an hour, that pace. And I think it's because your body with the faster bouts is desperate to recover. And it really seems to click something in your brain that, no, I'm trying to recover here. I know I'm going fister, but I, this is my chance to recover. And it, it causes a relaxation effect and it really does teach the body 
to run and then the efficiency that comes with that. You know, the first time I attempted some of this stuff, um, the thing that blew me away was the next time I went out and tried to run, because I was trying to recover at about a 520 to 530 mile pace. And the next time I went out and tried to do it, a tempo run at 530 pace, it was the easiest thing in the world. And suddenly I had this huge breakthrough and I was, I went like 15 miles at under 530 pace. And it was like, that was awesome. Like, how did that happen? Um, so there was, there's something that happens within the mental physical side of things where your body kind of figures it out with the, there's also then with the marathon, a, a very specific with the rest being quicker, that's more about fooling your body for glycogen. So you're, you're trying to run slow enough that you're able to catch your breath a little bit so that you can go much further, but fast enough so that your body doesn't really notice a mechanical difference between the marathon pace and that. Is this the only thing it does? No. What else does it do? I have no scientific basis for any of this. I am not a scientist. I've done none, no research. This is strictly from looking at this from a, a perspective of when I look at a program of successful runners, one runner could be doped, could be a, a, an unusual talent or a one of a kind. But there are programs that have repeatedly produced good runners. And so I look for, are there things that, they, that all of these programs are doing? And then those things are probably your most important training, the things that carry over. And these alternations show up in a lot of these programs. So when you talk about Oregon 200s, you know, one of the Bill Bowerman, Bill Dillinger workouts was, you know, two miles of basically a 200 at mile pace and a 210 seconds slower. And, you know, then they would extend it. If, if you were really good, you might go three miles. You know, Seafree Fontaine went four miles. Galen Ruff reportedly went six miles, which is insane. But something happens with athletes who do this a lot, even the shorter workouts like that. And if you look at like the Australian system, so in Australia, the, there are some very common workouts, Deke's quarters. So an eight by 400 session with 200 quick jog, 40 to 45 seconds for an elite male. Um, that's only three miles of running. And then three miles of 200 on 200 off. Also similar only three miles, you know, again, um, and a Monaghetti fartlek, 20 minute fartlek, but the recoveries are, are kind of still kind of popping. So you, you should have a pretty fast, maybe your overall pace averages about marathon pace or even half marathon pace on a good day. Australians almost never move to the marathon and have a blow up. You don't see guys who train on this system who've run 28 minutes for 10 K run a 216 debut. You see it in America all the time. And if you look at the Australian, I mean, Australia population wise is 10% U.S. population, but they've got almost as many sub 210 marathoners as we do. And you go, why? What's going on? And there is something about doing the alternations that leads to more efficiency for the marathon. And I don't know what it is. And there's something about doing intervals that way that really helps you access your 5k, you know, 5k, 10k and make it better specific. And I think part of that is just when you take a standing rest, your body can learn to just recover really quickly while standing. But if you kind of go quicker on that rest, your body, it's just more specific to what is really happening in a race, which is like, I really need to sustain this effort, you know? Right. Um, and I think that the big mistake people make with interval training is that they think for the shorter race, oh, the difference, you know, I want to get better. I need to run these intervals faster. And it's like, no, the difference, you, 
Look at the first interval session of your season. If you hold that pace for 5K, you're going to be thrilled. You know, you just did 12 by 400, and I don't care what the pace was, but add them up. You run that for a 5K, you're going to be the happiest guy in town. And the difference between that workout and the 5K is that you took rest. So your specific phase should be about reducing or eliminating those rests or making them faster, closer to that pace, you know? Um, And so, you you know, maybe the next time out, you're going to do 10 by 500 with the same rest block. And then maybe eight by 600 with the same rest block. Or maybe you're going to keep doing the 400s, but that, that 200 rest becomes a 100 rest. Or it gets done in, you know, that 200 rest was slow. It's at eight minute mile pace. But by the end of the season, you're running that 530 mile pace, you know? So you're just really forcing your body to be more relaxed at the, at the, the goal race pace. So there's a lot that goes on with those sessions. I don't have a physiological understanding of why I have a workman's philosophy and a workman's understanding of how I, I have had them work with me and work with other athletes and how I can see, Oh my God, this program does it. And that program does it. And man, it's really super effective. Um, and, but there's, there's more there than meets the eye. Um, and it would be really hard, um, to design a study to figure out what was going on, I think, but I'm not a physiologist. So maybe, maybe it's not as hard as I think. So knowing how critical those types of sessions are, like basically why would you ever do anything different than this? You know what I mean? Um, There are times when you want to really drive up lactate. Um, There are times when you would want um, a full recovery. You're looking at to be more relaxed in the workout. Um, I like to, to prescribe some workouts that are pretty easy. You know, so where you're kind of doing a workout and you sort of finish and go, man, that was that wasn't that challenging. Um, but you got some good quality work in there. Um, so there's a situation like that. Um, additionally, early in a specific phase for um, a 5K or 10K, you want to kind of really hit a, a, a pretty aggressive pace that you're not really ready for. And so you need some pretty good rest. Um, and so it could be hard to hit the goal pace with an alternation style workout in any volume, you know, you might be, oh, you sure I can do six by 400 at my goal 10 K pace, but like that's, that's 2,400 meters of work. You know, you're not going to build the right muscular endurance with that. So yeah. All right. I'm going to take some bigger breaks, um, and, and hammer some miles, that sort of thing. Um, altitude, um, sometimes you, in order to get some muscular work, um, you need to do some hammer fests and, um, frankly standing around up there is practically an alternation anyway, sometimes. So, um, there are a few different spots. I don't prescribe a ton of it. Um, milers is, is another time where maybe, a, you know, a miler, you know, you really need to kind of blast stuff out. Um, 800, there, there are definitely some times when you're going to want to do that. Yeah. Well, um, man, you have, like, really cleared a lot of things up for me, so I really appreciate uh, all these great answers. Um, That's good. Usually I feel like I make things – I muddy the waters more than I clear them up, so – no, no, I'm having some revelations here. This is good. Um, uh, well, it's getting a little late. Maybe I'll – got a couple more here I might throw at you, and then we can wrap up. Uh, how do you incorporate different types of hill training in a marathon buildup? Two answers. I mean, one is for a hilly marathon. So if you're going to run a hilly marathon, then hills are in everything. 
you shouldn't be doing your marathon workouts on a flat course. You should find a course that is similar or more challenging than the course that you're going to run, and you should do your workouts out there. So the loop I used to prep for the Olympic trials, I was running 520 mile pace. I, I couldn't, 518 mile pace. Now, I did, for convenience sake, do a workout or two on the track, and on the track I was running five flat pace. But it was just, you know, need, I knew I wanted to make sure it was tougher than Central Park. You know, because you could be in really, really good. You see this with a lot of um, athletes where they're in, they've run a great marathon in Dubai or Berlin, and then they go to a Boston or New York and they just crumple in the last 10K because they're just, they're a rhythm runner and they just haven't built the specific muscular ability to go up and down hills. So if it's a hilly marathon, it's just should be incorporated into everything. Honestly, if you can mentally handle it and that you can control your pace, well, if you have good pace effort sense, I would say everything like, you know, you're doing your, your, you know, um, your critical velocity type intervals. Well, you should be doing them that much slower, but on a hilly loop, you know, just everything should be, be hilly. If you're doing a flatter marathon or, um, whatever your goal race is, then I see it more as a, a base phase type structural thing. Hills build strength. Hills um, build a lot of power. Um, short hills are better for building the stroke volume of your heart than, than a flat sprint because they, they, they spike the heart rate up just a little bit higher so that when you force it to come back down under 140 quickly, um, the heart gets a better training effect. But um, yeah, so I would incorporate them in that way. How you incorporate them, I think is interesting. It, it depends on what you're looking to accomplish. Some people are, um, you're trying to do some speed work without mechanically hurting yourself. So I, I need to touch on VO2 max, but man, if I go on the track all the time, I'm going to get hurt. It's too rough on my T-bands, too rough on my Achilles, that sort of thing. Great. Do hilly fartlek. Do hill repeats. Grand. If you have access to it, the hill, a half hour to one hour hilly tempo run, hill tempo run. All uphill, continuous uphill. It's one of the greatest workouts you can do. It's just a phenomenal workout. Now, how many of us are really near a hill where we can run all uphill for a half hour to an hour? Well, if you don't live in the mountains, it's not happening. But if you have access to it, that's one of the best workouts in the world. Um, the next thing I would say is in the long run. So hilly long runs and um, specifically a hilly long run where you kind of surge the uphills. You don't have to kill them. It doesn't have to be like a you know, kamikaze, going to the gun, but just, you know, half marathon effort up every hill you face and then take it easy between the muscular component of that is extraordinary for building the ability to then go out and hammer for two and a half, three hours in a marathon. It just really, really builds the muscular power needed. Um, so those are the kind of how I would, would approach using it. So if it's a hilly marathon, it's all the time. If not, it's in the base phase. Okay. So you do a lot of coaching, right? Yeah. Since you started doing that, have you had any kind of revelations through your coaching experience that like never occurred to you before coaching? Um, I've had some different revelations that were specific to, to types of athletes. So um, I think that I really had a tendency with athletes who were particularly faster than I was in college at 5k or 10k and thinking 
they could just do what I did and hammer and go. And I didn't properly respect just like the abuse that my body was able to take at that point and how much work I had really done to do that. And so um, I worked with a, a guy a few years ago and we didn't work together for, for that long. Uh, frankly, I think I annoyed him. I, I can be a little abrasive. Um, but also I was just, the, the training was too damn dense. I was just trying to make him, I, I just thought this kid, he's, he, when we were working, he'd already run like a 220 marathon, you know, he had much better fight. I thought this guy's going to run 212. This is going to be no problem. Um, and it's just, he just wasn't recovering right. Um, and so, and I wasn't, I didn't want to see that. And, and so we didn't, again, we didn't work that long. I think I would have figured it out. I figured it out pretty quickly thereafter, but you know, um, I think that that revelation that, you know, for, you got to really be keen up on, make sure they're recovering. It doesn't matter if the training log's that pretty, but really, you know, especially for those higher, I kind of knew that with the, the more normal people, but that was, that was really key. I think that the biggest thing for me was realizing how hard a lot of normal, I'm going to say normal runners, which I would, I would kind of put as that window of, uh, 10 to 15 minutes under Boston qualifying to 30 to 45 minutes slower than Boston qualifying type runners. How many of them are just hammering their regular everyday runs? And that honestly, and if you feel like a jerk, cause you know, they're paying you, right? I mean, I'm not cheap. Like I'm, I'm a cheap human being, but I am not cheap for coaching. Um, I, so I feel like, man, I should really be giving you something. You know, you, you better be getting your, your money's worth here. Um, cause I would, I would damn well want my money's worth. And, um, I'm sitting there and it's like, you know, what you really need to do is just go for your same runs that you're already doing and just go two minutes a mile slower. Just slow the frick down, let yourself recover. And you're gonna, you're gonna get aerobically a whole lot fitter. And, you know, for six months, you're gonna run really slow. And you're gonna be like, this guy's an asshole. And then, you're going to all of a sudden be kind of as fast as you were before. And you're going to go, Oh, I guess, I guess I'm finally coming back, man. I, the, you know, every dog has a little bit of sunshine. And in two years, you're going to be so much better than you've ever been. And you're going to go, why wasn't I always doing this? And at that point, call me back. Um, Cause you know, now you're, you're ready to do some of the other stuff and that's where you're going to make your breakthroughs. But yeah, some people just, just slow the frick down on your regular runs. Just get some actual aerobic training in. Um, and then, the last one is a revelation that came to me very slowly over time, which is a lot of people don't want to be coached. A lot of people don't want to change their training. They want to be told what they're doing is right. And they want to shape whatever they're given into what they want to do. Um, John Cook always, I always got a kick out of him. He was this phenomenal coach. He has unbelievable success. You know, I always loved his line about uh, Shalane Flanagan. You know, uh, we were 18 months from the boot to bronze. And that was really, this. that's what this guy was capable of. You know, if you followed him and he guards his program like zealously. I mean, you know, you talk about every once in a while, someone who ran for him at James Madison will post a little something on let's run and 10 other former runners like coach is going to kill you. I mean, they're all like 25 years out of college, you know, and like coach is going to kill you. Like, do you realize like you can't put that up here? Like, and I feel like say, I just want it. Like, I would love to sit down with him and be like, John, put it all out there. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. The number of people who are going to sit down and actually say, oh, wow, that's different from what I'm doing. No, we, we have this self-confirmation bias. And as 
as a coach, the biggest challenge is breaking that self-confirmation bias. I think that's why Mike Smith, the coach at Northern Arizona, who I ran against in high school um, and occasionally as, as a pro, is such a phenomenal coach. Forget about it. He knows his stuff physiologically and all that. Like he's Forget all that. That's not what makes him great. He gets in those kids' heads. He's got a psychological thing, and he can he works with the college brain, and all of those kids are doing what they're supposed to because he's in their head and he's got them buying in. You know, if, if you're sitting, if you're, there are so many people listen to this podcast, right? If you listen to this one, you've listened to, you, you got more information than I do. You got more, you've, you've got so much good information out there. There's so many people who have, are they just, just, especially pandemic time. They've read so much. They've listened to so much. They've watched so much. You're still doing the same shit. You're still doing the same shit. You, you've maybe you tweaked your Tuesday workout a little bit. No, no, really look at it. Cause if you're not happy with your success, then you're, you should be, don't be afraid of a wholesale change. Um, and really be honest about, you know, really try to do it in, in true full fidelity for a little while. Well, that sounded like a, like a really good spot to just end it. But I do have one more question for you. Um, do you have a favorite marathon that you've run for any reason, like location, course, you know, just environment vibe or anything like that? I haven't done the Honolulu marathon, but that sounds wonderful. Um, you know, I, I did the half marathon out at grandma's. Um, and I would love to, I would love, love to do that marathon. I would love to go out there. Um, and then, I was supposed to do the Ome 30K in Japan, and it got snowed out, which was a weird experience, um, which is a 30K. But that made me really, really want to do the Fukuoka Marathon. Um, in terms of ones I actually ran, New York City is a very unique experience. There's nothing. The the Burroughs race is a very, very unique experience. Um, that's That's definitely something that if you get a chance to do it, you know, um, there's a reason Boston and New York get the, the bodies that they do. There's there's a reason to do them. Um, but I guess in terms of the races that I finished, I loved doing the world championships. The experience of getting to represent my country um, meant more than anything to me. Um, and the experience of of getting to run in a race like that was really, really awesome. Um, as as poorly as I performed. <laughs> it was it was that was definitely um yeah, yeah, I'd put that on my gravestone, you know, and and honestly, you know, I'm 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 over the hill and still not doing marathons, but uh, yeah, if 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 you said, you know, you know, make your deal with the devil, you can have one. I I, I yeah, I'd love to do another world championships. It's funny you mentioned grandmas. I uh, actually just signed up for grandmas. Nice, uh, and it's going to be my first one. Um, so I'll let you know how it goes. Okay. Oh God. What's the name of it? There is a breakfast place. I think it's, I think I got it from diners, drive-ins and dives. I think that they got, but if you go on, like if you Google, like, you know, um, Duluth, it was so good. Oh my God. It's, and I had to walk from the hotel. I didn't have a rental car when I was there and it was like three miles from the hotel. Oh, it was so stupid, but you know, like I was just waiting around for a race anyway. So I walked there. It was, it was worth it. It was so worth it. It was so good. I'll, I'll, I'll look that up. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really good. I mean, it was like 10 years ago. Hopefully it's still there. Um, yeah, no, um, it, that's, it's a, it's a phenomenal event. Um, really, really is a great course, great event. 
you know, you got to hope it isn't hot. They've had some trouble with heat, especially with, I think, with climate change. It's a little warmer in June now than it used to be. Um, but, oh, yeah, it's a, that's a, that's a, that's a great, great event. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> with your coaching, are you, uh, like, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, like, are you at capacity? Are you taking new people? Like, how does that work? Oh, geez, I'd have to check with the boss. Um, so I, a guy I used to, uh, I, I, co- I guess I coached him more than ran with him. I think we were, I think when I was a grad student, he was a freshman. Um, but uh, he, he runs the website. He's the brains of the operation. I think I gave him a number. Like, so we started out, I gave him a number. I said, yeah, this is how many people I can handle. And I think currently, because of the pandemic, I think I had a couple people who were just like, I got nothing to aim for anymore. I'm, I'm going to focus on my drinking. Um, you know, they didn't say that. They were great people. They just, you know, there's no races. They're paying a right. coach. I just, it's funnier if you say it. Um, so I think I have two spots. I think, I think that's the deal. Um, it's a flexible number in theory, I guess. But yeah. So if they go, it's, it's lowellrunning.com. I'm pretty sure I got a couple of spots, but I'm saying that and Ruben's going to listen to this and be like, no, you don't. But then he'll change the numbers anyway. He'll be like, fine, fine. You take them up. Nice. All right. Well, even if you're full, maybe if somebody wants to get into your waiting list. Uh, so lowellrunning.com, you said? Yeah, yeah. It, it's a great little setup. Ruben's, uh, Ruben's the boss. He's the other coach, uh, one of the other coaches. He's a 218 marathoner. He ran in the Olympics uh, for his home. Uh, he's dual citizen, U.S. and Cabo Verde. Um, and so he ran in the Olympics for them. Um, you know, phenomenal. He's run some of the top road races in the U.S. and stuff. And then uh, Kevin Beck's the other, the third guy uh, right now who, um, he was like a 221, 222 guy, but he wrote for Runner's World and he wrote a great uh, training book, um, run tough and a couple other things like that so uh yeah we're all you know it's it's it's, it's a good time but yeah no i'm the more i think about it i'm relatively positive i must have a couple of slots on there so okay all right well thanks again nate um we'll go ahead and wrap up and call it a night but uh thanks so much i think this is going to be helpful for a lot of people i know it was really helpful for me so we appreciate it hey great i had fun All right, that was my chat with Nate Jenkins. And just to clarify a couple things, his blog can be found at nateruns.blogspot.com if you want to check that out. Uh, And his coaching website is lowellrunning.com. That's L-O-W-E-L-L running.com, as in Lowell, Massachusetts, if you want to check that out. Um, anyways, you can follow this podcast on Instagram at Marathon Podcast if you want to stay alert to news related to upcoming interviews and that kind of thing. I'm also on Twitter at Marathon Run Pod. I'm not quite as active there yet. Anyways, um, so like I mentioned, At the end of the interview, I have signed up for my first marathon, uh, Grandma's Marathon in Duluth, Minnesota, in June. So I may start to incorporate some personal updates in the Instagram feed as I learn more and prepare for that. And I may even get more into my personal running here in future episodes if I think there's anything noteworthy happening But until next time, thank you for listening.